The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's it. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's really simple. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Blessed Assurance from Pastor Paul Twiss. The Apostle John's first letter, known as 1 John, will be Pastor Paul's text throughout the series. Since a Christian's assurance of salvation has major ramifications, we've invited Pastor Paul to join us on mic today. So Pastor, as this series title suggests, assurance of salvation is a blessing from God for Christians. That's right. The Apostle John had to be thinking this way. He states in his first letter that the goal is to give assurance. Now, assurance can go up and down during the life of a Christian, often due to various external situations that we may be facing. If you think about the implications, an unassured Christian may be less likely to share their faith. They may be enveloped with guilt because of their sin, their lack of assurance may even keep them from worshiping with other believers. So my advice is always the same. If you lack assurance, look to Christ. Your assurance comes from your faith in him. So the very best thing you can do is to feed your faith, gaze afresh on the person of Christ. Thanks, Pastor Paul, and we'll come back to this later in the series. Right now, let's listen to part one of Blessed Assurance. I think the blessing of assurance is one of the richest blessings available to the Christian. I think it's one of the richest blessings available to the Christian. So Thomas Brooks, the Puritan writing 350 years ago, he said, to be in a state of grace talking about salvation, to be in a state of grace makes a man's condition safe, happy, and sure. But the knowing and the seeing of himself to be in that state, talking about assurance, the knowing and the seeing of himself to be in that state, that is what renders his life comfortable and sweet. To have assurance of your faith, to be confident that you are in Christ, it changes everything about your Christian walk. It brings about more joy in your worship. It brings about more intimacy in your prayer. It brings about more zeal in your service. It brings about more humility in your fellowship. Everything that we aspire to as Christians can be found in abundance when you are confident that you are saved, that you are in Christ. So I think it's one of the richest blessings available. However, Here's the other side of it. It is one of the most complex issues in the Christian faith. It is one of the most complicated issues in the Christian faith. It is anything but a one-dimensional problem. Assurance is a multifaceted issue. It's an issue of self-awareness, fundamentally. When somebody asks, 
how can I know that I'm saved? They're asking, how can I be sure? How can I, I always think of it in terms of stepping outside of yourself and looking at yourself. How can I be sure that I have indeed made a valid profession of faith in Christ? And as soon as you understand that assurance is an issue of self-awareness, you can see why it's so complex. All of us have a history. Whether the Lord saved you at age three or 30 or 90, we all have a history. We, we bring something to the table in our Christian walk. And our experiences affect our understanding of assurance. So it might be that you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that assurance is not available, that you cannot have assurance. And if that's the environment in which you were raised, and then the Lord saves you later on, well, I can understand that assurance is a really difficult thing for you, because you were trained to understand that it's not possible, and here I am saying it is available. So we've all got this history that we bring to the table. In addition to that, we've all of us got our own personalities. Every one of us is different, and you might be someone who just naturally is nervous, naturally is doubting, you might be a warrior, and I can understand that if that is your disposition, then you question the fact as to whether your profession of faith is indeed valid. In addition to that, history, personality, we will have our circumstances, our present-day circumstances. And I'm aware that there may be many people in this room right now who are facing particular trials, that you're facing afflictions, that things aren't going the way you'd like. And when things grow dark around us, we can very quickly start to question what's going on with our relationship with the Lord. And our circumstances can be another reason why we start to question whether we're saved. Assurance can go up and down throughout the Christian life, oftentimes due to the external situation that we're facing. With that, I would just say I am aware that in this seminar in a room like this, quite possibly, quite probably, there are many of you that are struggling with assurance right now. Uh, I prayed this morning, and I have been praying, that this session would be of some help to you. Assurance is available. It is something that is available to every Christian. It's not promised, but it's available. Now, before we kind of jump into trying to understand it a bit more, let's just simply examine what it is. What is assurance? What do we keep talking about? Nine times out of ten, when somebody comes to me and says, I just don't know if I'm saved, I'm struggling with the issue of assurance, nine times out of ten, the question that they're not asking is whether Christ is sufficient to save. That is not normally the question that's being asked when people struggle with assurance. Most of the time, when somebody's struggling with this issue, the question that they're asking is, have I believed in the Christ who saves? Have I believed in the Christ who saves? The Puritans had, I think, just a wonderful response to this issue. The way they would respond to this question is essentially to try and force a man to look at the nature of salvation, or more specifically, the way in which the Bible talks about salvation from both a, a godly, eternal perspective and then from man's perspective. So if you think about it, the Bible presents salvation on the one hand from God's perspective. And that's where we read about salvation 
you know, in terms of eternal life and being raised to newness of life in Christ and being born again, receiving a new heart. These are actually very abstract concepts. We're used to this because we show up to church and this is the kind of language we use. It's very abstract to talk about salvation like that. I remember when I was unsaved, around the age of 20 at college, I was invited to an evangelistic talk. It was my friend, it was my roommate that was giving the talk, so I had to go. So I went along, having not grown up in church, and I listened to him present the gospel, and he talked about the gospel and salvation that day, specifically in terms of eternal life. And honestly, I was listening to him thinking, this guy is nuts. I'd never heard anyone talk about eternal life before, and here's this guy, my friend, saying, if I buy into this Christianity thing, he's telling me, I will never die. That is really abstract. And we're used to it because we show up every Sunday and talk about salvation in these terms, but it just, it's, not a, it's not a given. Now, the flip side of it is that the Bible talks about salvation from man's perspective, And then it is incredibly simple. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's it. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's really simple. And then think about what Jesus says in terms of how much of that kind of faith you need. He says you need a mustard seed of that kind of faith, and you're saved. Now, the reason I talk about all of that is because the Puritan response was this. The worried disciple comes to the the Puritan pastor and says, I'm struggling with assurance. I don't know if I'm saved. The Puritan responds and says, the Bible says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus? And the counselee says, well, yes, I have. And the Puritan responds, then you are saved, be assured. And that was their counseling session. And I know that if you're struggling with assurance here this morning, you're thinking, thanks a bunch, that's not a great help to me. And I understand that, I understand that. There is some value in what they were doing, and and I'll come back to that in a bit. There is some value in that answer. Let's turn to 1 John and see what John has to say about the issue of assurance. Now, 1 John, five chapters, 120 verses, it's all about assurance. It's the the most sustained and the fullest treatise on the issue of assurance that we have. If you look at the very back of the book, chapter 5 and verse 13, John says, these things I've written to you in order that you might know that you have eternal life to to the ones who believe in the name of the Son of God. These things I've written to you, who's the you, the ones that believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you might know that you have eternal life. That is John's overarching purpose statement for the letter. Now, actually, if you read 1 John, there are many times in the letter when he says, the reason I'm writing is for this. These things I've written is in order to. So he says that a number of times. I believe that that last time it occurs, 5.13, is the overarching purpose statement of the book, 
couple of reasons. Number one, what we know about is in the ancient world, when you write a letter, you often put your purpose statement at the very end of the book. So think about John's gospel, same author, the gospel, it's in chapter 20 at the very end that he says, this is why I've written these things, so that you might believe, and in believing, you would have eternal life. His purpose statement's at the end, same thing going on here. In addition to that, the historical context seems to suggest that this was his reason for writing. So the historical context, we understand, is that there's, there's a church and there's a false teaching that had arisen within that congregation. The false teaching was distorting the person of Christ and therefore distorting the gospel of Christ. And then these false teachers who'd been spreading this doctrine left the church. So in 1 John, we read about the fact that they left us, they went out from us, and they went out from us because they were not of us. So they left the church. And most likely, they took some of the congregation with them. So the situation probably is, you know, you're showing up to church every Sunday, and you're aware that something's going on, you're aware that there's some kind of false teaching, and you know the elders are, are trying to deal with it, and then the next Sunday you show up, and one third of the room is missing. Or maybe even a half of the room is gone. And you're sat there, looking at the people left, looking at each other, and you start to get really nervous. And you start to get worried, and you think, do they know something we don't know? Have they believed in the right message? And did we get it wrong? That issue of circumstances again. And John's writing to that group saying, I want to give you confidence. I don't want you to live a nervous and a worried Christian life. I want you to be sure of the gospel and the Christ in whom you've believed. And so he writes these five chapters with the purpose of giving them a certainty that they have indeed been saved, they are in union with Christ, and that they have eternal life. Now, look at the very beginning of the letter. Let's look at how it is John begins. People will often say, you know, I read 1 John and it's so repetitive. And I understand, it does seem like he's going around in circles. I would argue against that, and I think John is a masterful pastor and theologian. And I think when you really come to terms with the text and what he's trying to do with it, and you understand the issue of assurance, the complex issue of assurance, what you see, not repetition, but I think every paragraph, every new section, he's just attacking this issue from a slightly different angle. And so look at how he begins the book. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we beheld and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen and we testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you in order that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you in order that our joy might be complete or made full. I think that's a fascinating introduction. Keep in mind chapter 5, verse 13, I'm writing to give you assurance. I think that is a fascinating introduction. 
If someone was to come to me today and said, I'm struggling with the issue of assurance, I would say, why are you struggling? Almost guaranteed they would respond with something like, you know, there's just this sin in my life, and I just can't seem to get beyond it. And I've been a Christian 10 years now, I think, and I, I haven't seen any progress. Or they would say, you know, I'm struggling because... I just don't see fruit in my life. I, I look at everyone else around me, and, and I just don't see any kind of Christ-likeness in me. Or they might say something like, you know, I, I just don't feel like I'm in a relationship with God. It just doesn't feel any different for me. I don't seem to have that joy and happiness that I see other Christians have. And... The counselor might respond to any of those with questions that kind of further probe into it and then set about just trying to examine more closely that person's life. The counselor might respond and say, well, okay, let's just take that apart and let's just talk about your experiences. John, when he writes a letter to give assurance, he opens the letter with a paragraph that is absolutely nothing like that scenario. He opens the letter simply by setting forth Jesus Christ. Some people have said this is the most beautiful paragraph in the Greek New Testament. It is so incredibly rich, so Christologically precise and dense, and that is John's opening gambit to give the believers assurance so how do we understand it? How do we understand what it is that he's doing here? The first thing you need to understand is that assurance is the fruit of faith. If you're taking notes, that's probably the most important thing I'm going to say today. Assurance is the fruit of faith. So this thing that we're talking about this morning that we all want and we all desire after, it is the product of it comes out of an expression of faith in Christ. And now you can understand why the Puritans, they knew what they were doing. They may have been blunt, but they start by saying, have you expressed faith in Christ? Assurance comes out of faith, and you can't separate the two. Now, if that is the case, it stands to reason the very best thing you can do to nurture your sense of assurance is to feed your faith. If assurance comes out of faith, the very best thing you can do is not self-examination. We sometimes think self-examination is the sum total of, of assurance for, for right or for wrong, whether you feel it or you don't, let's look at my life. We're going to get there, and it's part of the puzzle, but it's not the main piece of the puzzle. Assurance comes out of faith, the very best thing you can do to nurture your assurance, is to feed your faith. How do you feed your faith? How about we look at the person of Jesus Christ? How about we look at the person who saved us? Murray McShane said, for every one look at self, there should be ten looks at Christ. And he's absolutely right. We need to focus on the one that saved us in order to feed our faith, knowing that one of the fruits of faith is assurance. Now, there's so much more we can say about these opening verses, 
but I want to skip that for now and talk very、uh, practically about how we would feed our faith. I want to talk very practically about what we might do in our daily life to simply feed our faith, so as to nurture our assurance. God has given us means of grace. God has given us many channels by which He imparts grace to us, by which we can、uh, feed our faith. The three primary means of grace are His Word, prayer, and fellowship of the saints. There are many means of grace. So a Christian biography is a means of grace. We read it, we feel edified, encouraged. A Christian conference would be a means of grace. A Christian song would be a means of grace. But the three primary means of grace, I always think about Hebrews chapter ten, and that's something of the theological centre of that letter. And there, the author says, "Let us draw near with confidence." That's prayer. He says, "Let us hold fast the confession of faith." Arguably, that is the word, and let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. That's fellowship, and we see this pattern all the way through the New Testament. The primary means of grace that God has given us, by which we feed our faith, is the word, prayer, and fellowship with the saints. It's not rocket science. It's really simple. If you're in any counselling scenario with me, well, first of all, I apologise. I'm sorry that it's come to this. That you've had to come to me for counsel. Uh, there are more competent counselors out there. If you're in a counselling scenario with me, and after you've given your presentation issue, see, I can do this. The presentation issue, the counsellors call it. This is what the issue is. If things aren't going right in your life, almost guaranteed, the first three questions I'm going to ask you are: Tell me what your Bible reading looks like. Tell me what your prayer life looks like, and tell me what your church attendance looks like, because. Almost guaranteed, if things are coming off the rails in your life, you are neglecting the means of grace that God has given to you. We have to be diligent and disciplined to pursue these means of grace. We're distracted. We're a distracted people. We have got to the stage somehow in our society where we don't think we can do life anymore unless we have a small computer in our pocket. Nearly everyone in the room right now has a small computer attached to them, and it's almost like I can't leave the house unless it's there. And as it vibrates or makes a noise, we're enslaved to it, and we have to check it. We have to check it. And then there's the emails at work, and and all of the busyness of life just means we're a really distracted people, and we have lost. I'm convinced the the Christian discipline. Of meditation, sustained meditation, to sit with God's word open, to read it, not for five minutes and not for ten minutes, but to engage with the text over a, a period of time, to consider the truth that's being told to you, to turn it over in your mind, and to respond to God in prayer based upon that truth, to pray the truth back to God and to thank Him for that truth. That is, I call it contemplative prayer or meditative prayer. It combines those first two means of grace, the word and prayer, and it feeds your soul. You're listening to Timeless Truth today. In a recent series, Pastor Paul emphasized from the Gospel of Matthew that there is a danger in embracing kingdom ethics and not the person of Christ. 
It is Christ who saved us, but the distractions in our lives often keep us from prolonged meditative focusing on Him, our Savior. You know, there's always more to hear and learn on our website, TimelessTruthToday.org. TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts, and there you'll find relevant and practical gospel messages from Pastor Paul. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Tomorrow, it's part two in our new series, Blessed Assurance, where Pastor Paul examines three means of grace available to believers from the cross of Christ. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.